0: Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. If you were to ask the average person the defining doctrine of Reformed theology, basically Calvinism, they'd probably tell you it's election and predestination. The irony is that every Bible-believing church, at least on paper, believes in election and predestination. They just don't agree on what these words mean. In this episode, Cameron and I are going to talk about what it means to say that God chooses his people and how we ought to feel about this very scriptural but very challenging idea.
1: I think the day has come for us to have an episode about election and predestination. Sounds good. We've been doing this podcast long enough. Uh, we're comfortable enough now. <laughs> and of course, the topic, the topics come up in your sermons and in various conversations from time to time. And in Reformed Church, Presbyterian Church like our own, we sort of live and breathe election. Honestly, it's it's all around us in our theology, but we haven't yet narrow down to discuss it. And I thought we should do that in this this episode because it came up in your sermon last Sunday, of course, and we were having a discussion earlier, too, about how you're going to be writing about this soon, too, right? Right. Right. So let's talk about election and predestination. First off, I actually want to kind of talk about the difference between those two words Mm -hmm. because I, I, I think that's significant. So when we talk about election... Is there a difference from predestination or is it kind of the same thing? So I think it, there is a distinction and they kind of go together. So
0: it's not such a distinction that, that you're dealing with two entirely unrelated things, mm-hmm. but you could draw some, some differences that, that are helpful. So when we use the word election or elect... The substitution you could make into plain English is just a choice. That election is just a choice. You know, when we Mm -hmm. go to vote, you know, in an election, we make a choice Mm -hmm. and that's all election means. So the doctrine of election is referring to a choice that was made. But in this case, it's a choice made by God, not by us. So divine election is just a reference to God having graciously chosen. And then the question is, okay, graciously chosen what? Mm -hmm. So in an Old Testament context, we're very comfortable talking about Israel as the chosen people. They are the elect nation, chosen by God. And no matter what denomination you're part of in uh, the the broad church, uh, those are pretty uncontroversial ways of thinking about israel in the old testament Mm -hmm. what becomes controversial is when you start using language like that in the new testament when you see continuity because there's a change that takes place from old testament to new testament we're we're not talking so much in terms of tribes and nations as we are talking about uh, a spiritual tribe Mm -hmm. a spiritual nation Mm -hmm. so uh, the idea of chosenness is not an ethnicity that has been chosen but it is people, individuals who have been made into the body of Christ. And so even there, the controversies are narrower than people might think. So oftentimes you'll hear Calvinists believe in election and predestination and other kinds of Christians do not. Mm -hmm. Well, the way people talk... (laughs) I get it. Like the way most people talk about election and predestination, you assume they don't believe in those things, but technically they do because the Bible teaches them. So every Christian church technically believes in election and predestination. The only disagreement is let's say over what those things mean or uh, how far you're going to go in, in accepting those things. And again, even there if you get technical and you start talking to theologians about how far they might go, you might find a lot of non-Calvinist theologians saying things about predestination and election that sound really Calvinist. Um, I was listening to a lecture recently about a double predestination uh, and about uh, superlapsarianism. So, that, so the idea that God makes the decree of elections, so he chooses and he does it prior to, The decree of sin so think about it this way like god before the foundation of the world before anything has happened the first thought in his mind is to choose people to save and then he thinks hey sin Mm -hmm. that is about as as calvinist as you can get the idea that god chooses before he even considers the the question of sin and that is a Roman Catholic view in the Middle Ages, I think, associated with the Dominicans, uh, that is a very like extreme expression of superlapsarianism. Mm-hmm. Now, that's shocking to, to most people. It's not shocking to you know theologians and, and historians of theology. Um, again, this stuff is taught in Scripture. Yeah. To one extent or another, we all have to deal with it the fact that you only really ever hear reform people talking about this stuff, it should be a bit of a red flag. Like why, why don't other people talk more about this? But, um, but again, that's sorry. Long answer to a simple question. <laughs> no. Election is choosing Now, predestination. Uh, you might think of it. I mean, it's, it's like what it sounds. It's, it's what is God choosing for? Yeah. and what he's choosing for is for that salvation or let's say that that ultimate face to face communion with him so that's the the destination in predestination mm-hmm. and the idea is the just that the certainty of that outcome is based on the choice that god makes not on all of the stuff that follows from that choice yeah yeah that's
1: helpful do you think also predestination refers broadly to sort of like God's plan to, and maybe it's a more, a more general way of talking about it. I'm thinking of the passage you preached on from Matthew 11, mm-hmm. where Jesus specifically calls out the father's plan. Yes. And you interpreted him as speaking about election, but he didn't use the word there. He's just sort of talking about like, the unfolding drama of salvation kind right. of thing. Right. I mean, he
0: talks about choosing, oh, he yeah. talks
1: about choosing and, and that's, that's why,
0: uh, election kind of mm-hmm. comes into the, the, the forefront there, but specifically he's talking about how to explain rejection, mm-hmm. not acceptance. Yeah. Right. So, so you might say that what Jesus is trying to address is something that, um, that theologically we talk about under the heading of reprobation, not, not salvation. So Mm -hmm. why are people rejecting these things? And he thanks the father that the father has hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children, revealed them to the humble. So Mm -hmm. that is a reference to the plan of salvation. Like Mm -hmm. part of the logic of how God does things the way he does and why is that he wants to humble the proud that he wants to be glorified by demonstrating that that we're not saved by our own merit, our own intelligence or whatever, so that you have all these people in the New Testament who should be the early adopters because of their religious education and their position in the religious hierarchy. You would expect them to be the first to recognize the Messiah. Instead, they're the last and they resist the most. And this is not a failure of God's plan. Jesus is thanking the Father because this is his plan working out. So so really, he's talking about what we might think of as a, a byproduct of election, um, but it is all connected together. Yeah. So yeah, in that sense, I think, right, when we talk about election and predestination sort of um, writ large... We're just kind of talking about God's plan Mm -hmm. that that we see parts of, but don't
1: fully comprehend. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a question on Sunday. I'll just ask you now (laughs) (laughs) about, about that point because I was thinking of sort of Paul's response to this issue of hardened Israel in Romans Mm -hmm. nine through 11. And he gets to the end of that section and he seems to have some hope for Israel Where it's like, well, yeah, they were hardened, but God used that to bring the Gentiles in. And then he's going to use that to bring Israel back. So the question is like, is Jesus really talking about an eternal decree Mm -hmm. in that section? Or is he more so talking about the historical unfolding of God's redemptive plan, which would leave room, maybe, for, for these cities that he's just woed in the chapter before would leave some kind of like hope for them still. So I would, I would say both
0: of those things actually leave room and leave hope for them. And that's, that's kind of the, the thing we tend to overlook. There's this assumption that if, if God has in mind everything that's going to take place and everything's going to occur as God has it in mind, that that somehow suggests a hopelessness or, Mm. or
1: a determinism. Exactly. Right.
0: And, and, it seems to me that Jesus sees it just the opposite. It becomes a basis for hope, not a reason to lose hope. The fact that God has this plan and that God has the power to realize this plan suggests that God's intentions may, may like overflow the banks and, and those who are most hardened might be brought to him, mm-hmm. as indeed Paul was. Yeah. So Paul, you would expect from his biography would be the last person in the world to write off the hardened hearts of those who had rejected Christ because he was one of them. And I think that belief in God's sovereign electing choice before the foundation of the world is utterly consistent with maintaining a hope for literally everyone. Because, number one, we don't know the mind of god we don't know uh what and who he has chosen uh, but also because we have reason in in what he's done so far to see that that there's actually that god delights in doing things like that you know god delights in showing his mercy where you would expect mm-hmm. you no know, mercy to be found he delights in taking you know, a persecutor like Saul and turning him into a, a a missionary ambassador like Paul. And so I think there's there's no incompatibility between those two things mm-hmm. and, and that what Jesus is talking about encompasses all of it. Yeah. And what Paul is talking about indeed in, in Romans encompasses all of it as well. Yeah. I mean I, I think that technically what where Paul is going to end up is is in this recognition that Israel as a nation is rejecting the Messiah and yet there are Israelites who are accepting him. Mm-hmm. And so that is reason for hope. I don't know if if I would go farther than that and say that that he like has, you know, a, a bigger hope than that, mm-hmm. but he may, you know, and and I think that I'd be the last one to to say that um, we want to, you know, put limits on what God may do. Right. I mean, I I don't yeah. think I don't think anyone is going to stand in the presence of God at the end of everything and see him face to face and look back and say, you know what, I'm really disappointed <laughs> yeah. with what you did. Like exactly. you, you really kind of led me to believe that it was going to be different. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think we will look back and see the utter love and justice of all of it. Mm-hmm. And it will all make sense, but that doesn't lead me to think. And, and now in the meantime, whenever I see election and predestination in the Bible, I'll just go la 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 and not think about it. You know, it's like yeah. a, all of it fits together and it, and it's all given to us in order to be a comfort.
1: Well, I think one of the most comforting passages that mentions if you, um so, so I just gave it away one of the most comforting passages <laughs> passage that mentions predestination and election is Ephesians chapter yes. chapter 1 you know this beautiful section where Paul is just he's laying out the whole gospel which encompasses these doctrines and you said you're going to be writing about this right here?
0: yeah there's a, a a thing that's going on at our denomination to celebrate our 50th anniversary and a, a number of writers are contributing uh devotional pieces on different texts and I happen to be working on one on Ephesians 1.4. And so that's a great reference to uh, these very things, to this idea of God choosing before the foundation of the world that we would be in Christ, be holy and righteous in, in Him. And so it's a wonderful statement of election and predestination. And it also has a beautiful um, beginning and end, vision because it's not only speaking of the choice, but it's also speaking of the ultimate end of the choice mm-hmm. that they kind of go together, which is nice. But there's even something better about this passage from my point of view, which is the the last two words of verse four in love. Yeah. Because if you look in the English standard version, which is the translation that we tend to use at grace you'll find that those two words, although they're the last words in verse four in the translation are moved to the beginning of the sentence that is in verse five. So verse five, uh, people often think it's in love. He predestined us, but technically it's he predestined us and the in love is pulled over from, from uh, verse four. Yeah. But, when I first saw that, I just found it electrifying. You know, I was like, wait a second. If that's right, if that interpretation is correct, that really does help bring things into focus, that this idea of predestination is an expression of love. And I had always seen it as a kind of difficulty to be overcome, you know, that this is this sort of hard doctrine that uh, we have to philosophize about, and, and that, you know, it's it's just this this tough mystery, and yet here in Ephesians 1, it's presented as an act of love, and that really does make sense, because if you ask yourself, why does the Bible talk about this? Like, why even say that this is a thing? Um, Did God not realize the endless debates that were being set up by even mentioning this? Like, Like, shouldn't, the apostles have been more discreet mm-hmm. like shouldn't paul have not used these words and created all of this misapprehension that that sort of thing so why would you talk about this like what purpose does it serve what good does it do philosophically i'm not sure <laughs> it does any good right. you know i i don't know that that it's been Especially helpful. Maybe you could say that, that uh, as people have come to a greater understanding of God's sovereignty, that's, that's been helpful as a sort of theological thing. But, but I would say that the main utility of this revelation is the comfort that it gives, both to you as an individual, if you can reflect on God's work in you from before the foundation of the world, you might more easily have confidence that that work will continue until it is utterly complete. Mm -hmm. And when you doubt that, when you begin to worry, you might be able to cling to that idea of God's work, going back all the way to the beginning before the beginning Mm -hmm. and, and find strength in that, that you won't find as long as you're convinced all that work began when you set it in motion if you really meant it (laughs) and did you really mean it? And are you sure? And you know, that sort of thing. So, so taking it out of the realm of the subjective and moving it into something objective that God has done is, is a comfort. And it's also a comfort as we were just alluding, when I contemplate the fate of those I love who are not yet in Christ. When I pray for people who I would like to see, know his grace and they, they do not yet know him, if it's all up to them, I can easily lose hope. Mm-hmm. But if it's up to him, then maybe he can do things that I can't imagine are possible. You know, Given my knowledge of people and where they're at, I might think, you know what? There's just no hope. But maybe there is hope because it's ultimately up to him. So again, yeah as you reflect on these things, I think the most valuable way to reflect on them is, is the comfort that they give the assurance that they give, not the ammunition that they give for debate, because I think not enough is explained to answer all of our questions in the philosophical arena. Like like we can go pretty far based on what's been revealed. There are some things I think we can say with, with, pretty good certainty are, 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 accurate or are not accurate. Mm-hmm. You know, that we can go a lot farther than a lot of people would like to believe. And yet there's actually relatively little revealed compared to, you know, the truth as it exists in the mind of God, right? There's mm-hmm. still so much mystery that ultimately if, if the point of all this is, is just for us to gain more understanding, not much will be accomplished. But if it's to give us more comfort, and to give us more confidence in the power of God and in his plan of salvation and its ultimate success, I think it does that really well. It gives us reason to rest in him. So I think when people reflect on election and predestination, and, and certainly at grace, when it comes up, as it so often does, as you work through Scripture, you'll find it in in the most surprising places it becomes an occasion for us to celebrate who God is and what he's doing not an occasion to have another you know heated debate over theological gymnastics
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I totally agree and One thing I really love about this passage, I just want to read a little bit of it for those who don't have it memorized like I don't. Um, I'll just read verses four and five. Ephesians one, four and five, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I mean, I can't stop in the middle of a sentence (laughs) Uh, to the praise of his glorious grace, you know, with, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that that language of blessing too is, is really profound there. It's, it's an act of love, which seeks to bless us. And the prepositional phrase that always gets me is in him or in Mm -hmm. Christ. I think oftentimes the, the discussion around predestination gets people really concerned about themselves as individuals am i chosen but this passage doesn't really allow for that it's it's in christ it should really point our eyes towards towards him and your comfort is obtained as you're seeing yourself in in him you know yeah
0: you know i think there's there's two things you don't see a lot of in scripture and maybe not at all uh one of them is like election producing anxiety yeah you know that that there's not a lot of, but am I one of the chosen? Because it's a pretty simple thing to understand. all like as the, the Spirit works in you and you come to faith. If if that couldn't be, unless it was God working within you, then you're like, okay, yeah, I'm chosen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 not that complicated, right? And and you who may have been you know persecuting me. Right up until five seconds ago, as you come to faith in him, I'm like, oh, you too. This is true of you as well. Um, So it's not, again, it's not a navel-gazing sort of, but am I chosen? Um, The other thing you don't see in scripture is, okay, I'm chosen, but what about them? And that, I think, is a common sort of root of objection, that people make that, that there's something fundamentally unfair about the idea that God would show mercy to me, but not to you, or vice versa. Um again, that's not a a sort of thread of angst that you find in the New Testament, or in the old for that matter. There's there's not, you know, a a, a place where the psalmist is like you know lord it's so unfair that you've chosen us as your people and and you know what about the egyptians is it is it really right that you chose us and not them and you know i think that logic is one that we've imported into scripture as we philosophized about what god is saying but but the way to receive these things scripturally i mean like the biblical way of receiving them let's say doesn't come with that baggage that suggests to me that the right way to understand them precludes those things. And whatever, whatever draws me into the navel gazing, am am I truly elect? I think is probably not the right emphasis. And by the same token, the thing that starts to, to, to get me to question the justice of God and, and, you know, he, God's got a lot to answer for and that sort of thing is probably not taking things in their proper sense. So, Again, much remains mysterious, but I think whenever I find myself going off the cliff in, in my reflections, it's it's a good indication that I've taken a wrong path, you know, and that I'm thinking about these things wrongly. So whether it's, um, you might think of like a Arminian sort of, it's unfair, everyone has to get an equal shot. Uh, if God works differently than that, I want no part of it. Or if it's a, you know, Scottish Reformation, how can anyone ever be sure that they're elect? Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of uncertainty that, that can be bred. Um, both of those things, I think, are, are wrong understandings mm-hmm. of how scripture reveals
1: election and predestination and, and what they're for. So, last question maybe. What place do you think this doctrine will have going forward for the PCA? We're celebrating, you said 50 years? That's right, yeah. yeah this so. is
0: uh, the 50th anniversary, and um, it, it's a good question, I think, because for me, the, the answer that I want to be true is that we will continue to rest in the idea of the comfort of mm-hmm our theology not in the arsenal you know that that (laughs) its value to us will be the comfort not the fact that it it helps us win arguments or something like that Mm -hmm. um i think that there's always a tendency for denominations to drift there's always a tendency for confessions of faith to be sidelined over time that sort of thing and and every denomination with a confession has to constantly do that process of rediscovery, right? Like coming to terms once again with with our foundations and that sort of thing. And and we're no different. We we definitely need to explore our foundations and and really own our foundations more fully. But I'm saying that from the point of view that we need to own them and own them in that that um Let's say like full sense that 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 we receive them as Jesus speaks of them that that they lead us to to feel about God's plan as as the Son feels about the Father, you know that that it's not about um, scoring points against other denominations, and it's not about uh, assuring ourselves that we're you know the the, the Vulcans of the theological Star Trek universe or indeed the elves of the theological Middle Earth, but that we are comforted greatly by the gifts that God has given and, and what he has revealed about his plan and we're determined to keep revisiting that revelation and cherishing it. Thanks for listening to The Commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to The Commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.